0: Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories.
1: Hello, cardio nerds. Welcome back to another Cardio Nerds Case Report episode featuring our colleagues from Suma Health. We're going to be discussing a very serious case of a woman who presented with VF arrest in the postpartum period. You're in for a lot of learning. So stay with us.
2: Friends, this wonderful episode is made possible with support from Panacea Financial. We're lucky to have the founder of Panacea, Pete's faculty in Arkansas, and fellow cardio Dr. Michael Jerkins with us. Michael, would you tell us what Panacea is and the vision behind its creation? Well, thanks for having me. I've
0: been a proud cardio nerd for a long time myself and use these episodes to teach on rounds pretty frequently, but Panacea Financial is a digital bank that's built for doctors and doctors in training By doctors. So fellow physician co-founder Ned Palmer and I, we felt like we didn't have many fair options for banking because traditional banks viewed us as bad customers with our high debt and limited savings or income. And banks were never open when we had time off. Going back to even intern year, we had these conversations and eventually we created a digital bank that gives all customers, concierge level service available 24 seven free checking nationwide and loan options that are built just for doctors and, and trainees like our PRN personal loan, that requires no co-signer to get up to $75,000 in as little as 24 hours at a rate that's less than half of a credit card. And no one should borrow more than they need, but training and life can be pretty expensive and doctors really honestly deserve a better option at financing.
2: Well, that's just awesome, Michael. It seems to be a great resource that addresses many of the issues that a lot of us go through. But one of the reasons we're so proud to have your support is our shared mission with your foundation. When it comes to promoting professional diversity and inclusion, would you tell us a little bit more about the work you're doing?
0: Yeah, so our Profits from Panacea Financial actually fund our foundation that aims to strengthen the pipeline of underrepresented minority physicians. And this year alone, we're awarding $50,000 in grants and scholarships to medical students, residents, and fellows because At Panacea, we aim to make medicine better by decreasing financial stress, but also by diversifying
2: our workforce. Congratulations to you and your team for the incredible work you all are doing. Awesome. Thank you so much. And Cardi Nerds, to find out more, go to panaceafinancial.com to learn how you can join the growing number of physicians that expect more from their bank. NSCF Financial is a division of PREMIS, member FDIC, and you can find more using the links in the episode description.
1: Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. CardioNerds is an independent, fellow-founded platform with a mission to democratize cardiovascular education, to continue creating free and unbiased quality content We are proud to collaborate with all stakeholders, including trainees, experts, fellowship programs, professional societies, industry, and patient advocacy groups. Relevant disclosures can be found in the episode show notes, and the curriculum and content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by Cardi Nerds without external bias. And with that, it's time to get nerdy.
2: Hey, Cardi Nerds. We are so excited to be back with our colleagues at Suma Health. We're going to have our presenting fellows uh, introduce themselves. We have with us Dr. Sugat Wagli, Dr. Deep Shah, and so excited to bring back Dr. Poo Nandar, who is our ambassador from the program and has made so many fantastic contributions to the platform. Poo, why don't you go ahead and remind everyone who you are?
3: Hi, everyone. I'm Poo Poo Nanda. I'm currently finishing my second year cardiology fellowship at SUMA. I was born and raised in Myanmar and did my med school. I did my residency in Central Michigan University, and I'm interested in advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology, which I'm going to be applying for, and I'm so excited for today.
4: Yeah. Hey, everyone. My name is Deep. I'm a uh, first-year fellow, about to finish first-year fellowship here at Summa Health. I'm originally from Columbus, Ohio. That's where I did my uh, training and residency at Riverside Methodist Hospital, and, and then moved back up to Akron for uh, fellowship. I'm also interested in heart failure and transplant, but also like general with the preventative focus as well. And I'm really excited to talk about this case today. All right. Hi, guys. My name is Sugat. Originally from Nepal, came here when I was
5: pretty young, moved to Indiana. So I did my medical school in Indiana. I did my residency at St. Vincent Hospital in Indianapolis and then came to Akron for cardiology fellowship. I'm currently finishing up my second year of fellowship. I have a a spot at Virginia Commonwealth University starting in 2022 for interventional cardiology, which has become my passion. And I'm really excited to talk about this case with you today.
1: Well, Sugat, we definitely share that passion with you. Both Amit and I have chosen the interventional way. Um, actually, I'm STEMI call right now. So, but hopefully, uh, ho- hopefully plaques won't rupture over the next like two hours for recording, or, or hopefully forever. I'm in the CCU right now too. So, guys, <laughs> <Okay.
2: laughs> But we as cardio nerds, we, we love all of cardiology equally.
1: We do. We do. Yeah, we <laughs> very much so. Yeah, folks, we love all branches. Yeah, it's amazing. We're coming from all over the world to get together today in Akron, Ohio, which is actually the second time cardio nerds have had the pleasure and luxury of visiting for cardiology. So, who you had your chance last time, but Deep Sugat, why don't one of you tell us the place you'd like to go and talk about a great case in cardiology while enjoying Akron? Where's your favorite place to do that?
5: So honestly, you know, I'm currently stuck in a call room in the CCU, but (laughs) if I had a choice, (laughs) you know, a lot of the parks have really nice places that you can sit down and, and, you know, have a coffee and study or or talk about cardiology or whatever it is that you want to do. So I actually really like Monroe Park. That's actually very close to where I live. I
2: tend to go there a lot with my wife. You know, I can't agree more. The greenery, the outdoors around Cleveland are absolutely stunning. You know, in the brief moments we have in the summer to enjoy them is uh, definitely a favorite pastime for me and my family. But here we are in Monroe Park. Guys, let's dive into an awesome case.
1: Yeah, let's just make sure Pooh's snake from last episode, which everybody should check it out. It doesn't eat us. But yeah, let's do a great (laughs) case of cardiology. I'm guarded, but ready.
3: (laughs) All right. All right, let's start. So we have a 37-year-old female who recently had a twin delivery four days ago, came in with out-of-hospital FIFIP arrest. So she had a past medical history of MTHFR mutation, which has association with uh, higher thrombogenicity. And she also had a history of migraine to prior uncomplicated pregnancy and delivery and to prior miscarriage. Past surgical history, she did have endometriosis and had a laparoscopic surgery. She was currently on regular perinatal vitamins, s for her migraine, ibuprofen as needed. There was no non-drug allergy, no significant or relevant family history. Social history, she is non-alcoholic, non-smoker, and she does not use any recreational drugs. So what happened on that night was she was breastfeeding and uh, her husband uh, went to downstairs to put the other two kids into the bed. And when he came back, according to him, it was like uh, 10 to 15 minutes that he was away from her. He found that she was on the ground and having seizure and he couldn't feed the pause. He couldn't wake him up. He started doing CPR and called EMS. Upon EMS arrival, patient was found to be in VFib and patient received defibrillation. So since EMS arrival to the hospital, she required a total of four defibrillation and five epinephrine. So she was integrated on the EMS and also the rhythm progress to PEA on route to hospital. And they continued resuscitation according to the ACLS protocol during CPR, pushing EPI. Upon arrival to emergency department, we had a pause rocks was obtained and at that time we did an initial labs, EKG, x-ray, everything was done. So, so far total downtime since patient arrested until we got rocks is around like 50 to 60 minutes.
2: Wow, poo. You know, we began, you know, with uh, joking and laughter and levity in Monroe Park, but things got rapidly serious very quickly. This is a high stakes situation and a terrifying situation. I'm just thinking about the twins at home, what must be going on in the mind of her husband. But as a cardiology fellow, you know, somebody comes in with a VF arrest as opposed to other arrest rhythms. We think you you may imagine that this is more likely to have a primary underlying cardiovascular cause. So as a cardiovascular fellow on call, you know, somebody calls you from the ED, how did you guys kind of think through this patient and what are the next best steps here?
3: So since it is a Vfib arrest of highest Top differential at this point is ACS, and we cannot ignore the PE, and it can also be some sort of myocarditis, fulminant myocarditis, peripartan cardiomyopathy. It can also be amniotic fluid embolism, but it's a relatively late for amniotic fluid embolism. She already delivered four days ago. So at this point, all of these things are highest differential. In meantime, we got labs, x-ray, EKG, and ED physician also did a bedside echo before they call us.
1: Ooh, that's a great differential and a great approach. And I would just add to that channelopathies, you know, maybe she has an underlying channelopathy, like prolonged QT syndrome or something like that, that may leave her susceptible to developing VF. I
2: I agree that the differential here is quite broad, right? I mean, I think the context is so important to consider here. She is so acutely postpartum, four days postpartum, and we, you know, doing the cardio B series you know, I think there's some tenets that come to mind is that one, pregnancy itself is such a stress situation, right? And so it's not uncommon for people to have all sorts of subclinical cardiovascular processes that come to light during pregnancy, you know, congenital and acquired. She's had prior uncomplicated pregnancy. So probably not some congenital issue, but certainly could have had something, some acquired issue that now is coming to fruition during pregnancy and, and the postpartum period, you know, pregnancy of increased cardiac output and whatnot. So hemodynamic stressors go up. It's also a arrhythmic state, procoagulant state. And one thing that I've realized in the Cardio B series is that for all of these higher risk situations for the Cardio OB overlap, the postpartum period tends to be the highest risk, whether it's pulmonary hypertension, aortopathies, cardiomyopathies. It's the postpartum period with the hemodynamic changes and the other stressors going on, lack of sleep, et cetera, that really make this a high risk situation. So I agree. I think the, the differential is broad. I think, you know, common things being common with VF. I like where your mindset and thinking about ACS, but you need to get, certainly get more imaging and more data. So, you know, you're on the ED and you're getting all the routine stuff and some cardiovascular imaging. What did you guys find?
3: Lab-wise, initial BMP is pretty much unremarkable. Sodium-135, potassium-3.3, bicarb-12, BUN-11, creatinine-0.8, plus sugar level was 377. Liver function doses is Miley Elevator, AST-ALD, 236, 234. Alkaline force is 103, total bilirubin-0.2, calcium-8, magnesium-4, albumin-2.8, hemoglobin-12, platelet count-134. White cell count is 7.5. So fourth generation trope I was 2.9. Antipro BNP was 1,800. Lactate was 10.7. INI was 1.2. D-dimer, 35.2. So we got a set of ABG because she was already intubated and had a respiratory failure. PH, initial PH was 6.8. PCO2, 58. PO2, 89. And PCO2, 8.9.
4: You know, when when you look at these patients, they come in, you know, looking at these values, you know, you're thinking there's a high mortality risk, with, especially with that pH, the lactate, and the high, the, the rising uh, liver enzyme function test. And you, you think about the fact that she was reportedly down for about 50 to 60 minutes. So essentially, a lot of those organs aren't getting the adequate perfusion they need. And that, you know, that's why you see that lactate elevation, as well as the pH being 6.8, as well as the shock liver state as the the liver enzymes kind of trend out. Luckily, her kidney function was still preserved at I think 0.8 with a solid GFR of greater than 90. You know, obviously that uh, the kidney function took a little bit of a hit as we kind of trended her labs during her hospital course. But then, kind of overall, this this kind of paints a shock state from the V fib arrest and being down for about
1: 50 to 60 minutes with some of these impressive lab values. I definitely agree with that. And that, as you said, this really highlights the downtime and obviously the longer the downtime, the higher morbidity and mortality of this patient population. So I'm really nervous for this patient, really nervous about her long-term outcome, and I'm nervous for her family.
2: You know, the troponin here, you think, is a troponin secondary to, you know, essentially being hypotensive and having a demand mismatch. But a, a trope I of 2.9 is pretty impressive. And I, I it does raise an alarm that maybe this is not secondary, but rather a primary issue. But I'm really excited to see what the post-arrest EKG shows. So Poo, what do the chest X-ray and EKG f- uh, show for us here?
3: X-ray show there's a significant congestion, cardiomegaly, maldefocal infiltrate. So the radiologist read was possible congestive heart failure versus pneumonia and post arrest EKG was very impressive. It shows sinus tachycardia with ST elevation in V2 do V6, 1 AVL, and AVL, androletra STEMI with Q wave in anterior leads. So right now, this is a case with V-fib arrest and androletra ST elevation. So after seeing this androletra ST elevation EKG, differential has narrowed down. Two, a major portion, one is a coronary-related ACS or the other one is non-coronary-related myocardial injury. So in coronary-related with the patient, by considering the patient age, peripartan situation, SCAD is at the top of a high differential. And it can still be plaque rupture, coronary vasospasm, and can also be coronary embolism from a hypercoagulable state. From non-coronary myocardial injury side, it can be fulminant myocarditis and can be takosubu stress-induced cardiomyopathy at this point. Pregnancy itself is a stressful condition.
1: You know, Pooh, that's a great differential. And this ECG, I definitely recommend everybody take a look on the episode blog post because it's not subtle at all. And this presentation is not subtle. This ECG isn't subtle. And I'm pretty confident that the coronary angiography that you're probably going to tell us happened next is not going to be subtle either. But just looking at this anterolateral elevations, so we're not only concerned about Whatever the process is, maybe it's SCAD, maybe it's those other things that you talked about. It's going to be involving extensive coronary vessels, right? So we definitely want to see what's going on with this patient ASAP so we can see if we can address the underlying issue for her cardiac arrest. So Pooh, what, what happened next?
2: Well, Dan, can I ask you, just say you are the Interventional Cardiology Fellow being called for this. You're on call today, so you may get called today for a similar case. And we, we discussed this with Dr. Melissa Wood in the pregnancy and coronary disease episode. But just as, as Pooh calls you to activate the cath lab, What's going on in your mind in terms of access and just how you conduct a safe angiogram in a postpartum patient?
1: Well, thanks, Amit. Like Poo said, you know, this patient has SCAD high on the differential and this is a very important population that we have to be very careful about, but we also can't miss the diagnosis. We have to make it. So we've got to take her to the cath lab, but we want to do no harm. And so in somebody we're thinking about SCAD, we have to be very gentle with how we access the patient, whether it's femoral or whether it's radial. We want to be very careful knowing that dissections can be related to other arterial beds and we don't want to induce any hydrogenic dissection either. Then when we engage the coronaries, we might be selective about how we do so. We may use diagnostic catheters that uh, may be more gentle to the coronaries. And we may be very careful with how much we inject, how hard we inject, because we don't want to propagate any dissection if there is indeed one there. But obviously, we have to make the diagnosis. So you're going to do it with gentle catheters, gentle access, and also gentle injections, making the diagnosis. And obviously, knowing that intervention on a spontaneous dissection is very challenging and sometimes not necessary. So just going in with an even-keeled mind is something that's going to be very, very important.
2: Yeah, Dan, gentle is the the word here. And I remember when we discussed this with Dr. Wood, you know, the access considerations she brought up was potentially considering femoral over radial. One, because maybe you have a lower risk for dissection. And as you said that, you know, SCAD potentially is associated with fibromuscular dyspagia that can be in other beds as well. But then also, particularly with pregnancy-associated SCAD, it's more likely to have uh, more extensive SCAD, left main SCAD, patients who end up being sicker and hemodynamically more unstable as opposed to non-pregnancy-associated SCAD. And so uh, one of the points she brought up was that if you have already femoral access, then it makes it easier to upgrade, you know, for uh, MCS support if needed. And, and I'm excited to hear what Dr. Grace, I mean, for our ECPR expert, will have to add here. But interventional considerations aside, uh, Pooh, what did you do from the antithrombotic regimen's perspective?
3: SCAD was high at the, at the top of our differential. So we held off a P2Y12 inhibitor loading, which we normally do it for other STEMI, plaque rupture patients. So it's SCAD is a spontaneous dissection and hematoma in the tunica media of the blood vessel. So we don't want to worsen the hemorrhage, hematoma. So we held off
2: loading with P2Y12 inhibitor in this patient. Great. So uh, it sounds like you guys took the patient to the CAT lab. What did you all find?
3: patient was taken to the CAT lab and we did a femoral approach. We shoot right and left coronary and we found distal left main dissection with extensive dissection all the way to the distal LAD and involving left circumflux artery. So at the time I was in the lab, when I saw that image, I was surprised and it was, it was kind of like a scary moment for me. Immediately after we see this left main coronary dissection involving LAD, all the way to the distal LAD and left circumflex no diaphragm, call CG surgeon for emergent cabbage.
1: Who when you saw that you said you were scared. What what exactly was running through your mind when you were looking at those images?
3: The coronary angiogram looks really bad and it's like a dissection. We were thinking about the dissection, but I did not expect it was going to be that extensive. I didn't have much experience before either. But it's just like a thin contrast. It's like a flowing into the LED. Yeah,
5: I think looking at the images, it was, you know, the dissection was very extensive. Mid-distal left main with a, you know, very thin true lumen. That, at least what we thought was a true lumen because that's what the contrast was flowing through extending, you know, pretty far into the distal LAD as well as the proximal circumflex. So it just it, it looked very intimidating from a, you know, percutaneous standpoint as far as like how you would go about trying to fix that without making things worse. And so I think, you know, Dr. Ifor at that moment did the right thing by getting the surgeons involved because of how sick the patient was. I mean, I, you know, for a lot of scad, a lot of times we can leave things alone and things tend to get better, but with how sick our patient was, you know, she really needed something to be done immediately. So at that point, I think it's good to kind of look internally and back off a little bit, understanding that how high risk of potential PCI of this extensive SCAD would be and call the surgeons and get them involved as soon as possible.
2: You know, I think the revascularization decision-making in SCAD is always interesting but particularly interesting in this case when you have hemodynamic instability. But I also want to backtrack. You know, there was a decision not to give a P2Y12 agent like clopidogrel or Ticagrelor. And it seems like that was a prudent choice given your suspicion for SCAD was high. And it also makes surgical planning easier and safer in this context. So, you know, I think the data is unclear about what the right choice is in terms of antiplatelets, but there was a, a great decision making acutely on the team's part. But then what was the the anticoagulation approach? Uh, we talked about the antiplatelet approach before the patient even went into the cath lab. She was given her brain. Gotcha. Very good. You know, when you find SCAD, right, just stepping back, there are three options. One is watchful waiting, right, because a majority will heal if given time. Two is percutaneous coronary intervention. And three is a surgical bypass. Right. These are the options for everyone, really, right? But can you walk us through why surgery as opposed to PCI, as opposed to watchful waiting here?
3: Given the, that much extensive scat involving left main and patient instability, I don't think in our patient center, the conservative approach is appropriate for our patients. So it's already out from our management approach. So PCI versus bypass. So if we look at the image, it's the dissection starts from the distal left main all the way into the distal early. So if you're going to put a stannin, you have to cover like a proximal and distal portion of the hematoma to prevent the propagation of the dissection. So in our patient case, I don't know where exactly that dissection ends, so how are we going to put the wire down? There's also a risk that when you put a wire down in, what if the wire goes into the false lumen and worsen the dissection? So that kind of patient situation, patient instability, extensiveness of our case, argen bypass was the best approach.
5: Yeah, I think for our case specifically, due to the extensive dissection, the biggest concern was, you know, what if we were to propagate the dissection flat proximally to the aorta? And then you have an even bigger problem. And then the stent burden, I mean, the amount of stents that, you know, Dr. Ifor would have had to place in this situation, I think it, it was just more prudent to uh, pursue surgery at this point. And, and like Pooh said, trying to find the true lumen when the true lumen truly looked very thin in the in the actual images, I, I think that would have been a very, very technically difficult procedure.
3: Even the patient was stable immediately after Ross when she was on the table, her blood pressure was 78 over 50. So she's progressively getting worse, and also it was a team approach. Our uh, intensivist was also in the lab; he was helping with the vent management. Patient was already intubated and pushing by carb until patient went into the OR.
2: Yeah, so you know that makes a lot of sense, guys. And you know why do we, in general, when possible, favor conservative approaches? Because a majority of these patients will heal by themselves if they can tolerate the acute period. You know, survive the acute period generally with pretty good result. Uh, recurrence rate is fairly low, and conversely, there. Are risks of intervention are high. With PCI, there's a risk of wiring the false lumen and stenting open the false lumen or potentially ballooning and extending the dissection, which we learned about with our UCLA case, you know, earlier on. And then with cabbage, there are also reports of bypassing the false lumen as well, because it can be challenging to tell. But here, what you're telling us is this patient is not the average patient. She has high risk left main SCAD, pregnancy-associated SCAD, with hemodynamic instability. Her pressures, you know, even though post Ross she was doing fairly okay, but in the lab, she was hypotensive. And the interventional approach would have been extraordinarily complicated and involved with a distal left main involved, bifurcational stenting, and again, with the risk of extending it. So, you know, I, clearly there was a phenomenal discussion with the heart team here to help us out, but and the patient ended up going for surgery. How did she do?
3: So she received a successful 3 cabbage VESA-CABG, to to LED a diagonal and OM1, and she required VV ECMO due to refractory hypoxic respiratory failure. And she was also placed on targeted temperature therapy through ECMO circuit because a neurologic status after she got rocks was unclear.
4: So, you know, she had a pretty complicated kind of 24 hours in the hospital and the ER and then the cath lab and then the OR. And so once the surgery was over, obviously we take her to the cardiac coronary care unit. And with supportive care, she was initially on pressors and kind of over time, over the next day, 24 to 48 to 72 hours, her hemodynamics improved and we were able to wean her off all pressors In addition, about post-op day three, we were able to decannulate her off the ECMO machine. And then on day six again continued supportive care we were able to extubate her to nasal cannula oxygen and you know during this time obviously there were numerous consultants obviously cardiothoracic surgery the coronary care or the CCU service heart failure service was following her as well as neurology the medical ICU for vent management as well. And then so, you know, as I said on day six, we were able to extubate her to nasal cannula oxygen and she had complete and appropriate neurological response, which was amazing. And this is when, you know, the heart failure team kind of took over in terms of management, in terms of starting oral guideline-directed medical therapy. We were able to obtain a transthoracic ultrasound and she had an estimated LV ejection fraction about 35% with akinesis of the certain walls of the left ventricle that kind of correlated to her coronary anatomy. So at that time, we were again like i mentioned we were starting her on oral guideline directed medical therapy she tolerated the medications pretty well you know we did have to kind of play a little bit of role in terms of risk versus benefit in terms of her breastfeeding status given that she just recently delivered but also you know making sure we were able to start these medications for 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 uh, cardiac benefits in terms of her ejection fraction and then you know we also had a pretty extensive discussion with her about a kind of an external defibrillator given her presentation and so kind of you know discussing with her the risks and benefits she did decide to go home with the light vest or the wearable external defibrillator and then, of course, have close cardiology follow-up in our clinic. Initially, we saw her pretty frequently and then kind of spaced them out as we were able to titrate some of her medications, continue to repeat her heart ultrasound or echo in about three months
2: or so, and then kind of just see how she does in terms of long-term management. You know, I've got to say bravo to the whole team, you know, the incredible care you all take took care of her is absolutely commendable and, you know, it, it made some challenging decisions, right? And I think there were a couple of focal points here. One was, what do you do from the antithrombotic perspective and, uh, you know, very prudent decision on your part to quickly decide, you know, somebody who's coming in with ST elevation and an MI to decide not to use ap a P2O12 inhibitor because it sounds like you, you know, you anticipated that as a postpartum SCAD, you know, this may be a more complex situation potentially with left main involvement, which is more likely in this context and, and and so, you know, this makes a surgical approach that much safer and easier, you know, in terms of the outcome. So that was uh, phenomenal. And I, you know, what to do with regards to antiplatelet therapy for SCAD is totally unclear, right? I mean, there is some expert consensus guidelines to consider doing antiplatelet therapy for up to a year, but, you know, the the benefit of that is unproven and there's a risk for bleeding. And so uh, I think there's a lot of variability in what people end up doing in practice. And then the the decision to, you know, in terms of conservative versus percutaneous versus surgical, you know, I think totally makes sense, right? Because this is a situation where there was hemodynamic instability and left main involvement. And so a, a phenomenal decision-making and a tremendous outcome for the case here. And let me ask, was she, in regards to the guideline-directed medical therapy, you know, kudos to consider her as a potentially breastfeeding mother. What did she actually leave on and, and was the plan for her to continue breastfeeding?
4: Yeah, so she did want to continue breastfeeding. And so given the kind of the limited and scarce data in terms of medical therapy with heart failure patients and the pericardial cardiomyopathy patients in terms of breastfeeding and contraindications, we were able to start her on a beta blocker as well as a uh, angiotensin receptor blocker with Losartan specifically. You know, again, obviously looking at the of data that is out there, while it's not the best evidence, you know, there's been a few studies that kind of show that certain of the ACEs or ARBs are a little bit more harmful in terms of breastfeeding, while others are considered a little bit safer. And so, you know, our, after discussions in a collaborative effort, we decided to put around a, a beta blocker and a Losartan medication to start off with. And then we also considered uh, MRAs as well. And, you know, given the data that is in terms of acceptability with lactation and breastfeeding, but we, you know, we decided to kind of focus on a stepwise approach and kind of titrating these medications first. And then eventually once she followed up in our clinic, we could eventually add that medication as well.
3: And just a follow-up point. So her EF has improved to 50%
2: on the follow-up echo and she has been doing well. Amazing guys. Absolutely amazing. So guys, this is just a phenomenal case and a very challenging case with a lot of, you know, important decision-making points. What were your takeaways from managing her?
4: Yeah. So I was actually on the heart failure service. So during my rotation at that time, so I saw one of the latter portions. And I think that an amazing thing is how something, I I don't want to say as simple as SCAD, but something can become so complex and have so many complications. You know, we, we talk about some of the complications of SCAD and she eventually, or essentially had pretty much all the dreaded complications that you could have with SCAD. And it's just kind of amazing to see, you know, where she started and how long she was down for to seeing her being extubated and having complete neurological recovery at such a young age and to be able to go home with her family and her
1: new new children and you know, hopefully continue to live the life that she wanted to live. Well, that's actually absolutely wonderful that she had such a great outcome. I'm so glad that the team didn't give up knowing that the Ross time was 60 minutes. I'm sure that in other scenarios people may have, but given the patient's young age and potentially reversible causes, you guys went full press and I love that. And uh, I love that she had a great outcome.
2: So Pooh, we, we talked a lot about the patient and we're also grateful that in the expert hands of your colleagues, of you and your colleagues, she had a great outcome. But I imagine this must have been a terrifying experience for her husband who is thinking about you know the love of his life and with two brand new twins at home. What was his experience and, and how did you guys manage that? It was a very sad scene just while talking to him. He was
3: standing outside the cat lab. We talked to him about the patient and we brought him to the waiting room and we were telling him that patient will need to go to the emergency open heart surgery and he dropped down to the floor and he was, he kept blaming himself. And what he was mumbling was she was complaining of the breast engorgement. In past two days, I could have taken her to the hospital and he kept blaming. So we had to tell him that you did the best that you can. You did the right thing that you resuscitate immediately and you call EMS, you brought her to here and patients and your wife is in the good hand and we will try our best. And he kept asking, will she be alive? Will she be okay? It was the most difficult question to answer for me. I couldn't say anything to him. Like I wanted to say that she would be okay, but I couldn't say. All I could say was we would try our best and she's really sick. And Dr. Espanol is a great surgeon for her. So it it was a very sad experience, a sad moment. And he couldn't couldn't take it. He couldn't take it as his wife is really sick and is going through the open heart surgery. He was just saying like she was talking to him just a few hours ago. And all of a sudden, he felt like she's not here. So that moment was very, very sad. And it was a very tough situation for me and also for the team to talk to him. I can't imagine what he was going through in his mind. He must be in denial. He must be in sad. And he didn't expect that kind of situation. I mean, he didn't expect and he never expected that kind of situation. And if something would have happened, he, I don't know how he was going to go through
2: Yeah, thanks, Poo. You know, we get so hyper focused on our patients. Sometimes it's it's very easy to forget the family and, and they're really an important part of the whole process. So thanks for sharing your approach. And again, thanks for taking such exemplary care of the patient and her loved ones.
1: Poo, we really appreciate you modeling how to talk to families in this particular situation. You just showed your maturity of your training to not make any promises, but also to show empathy and comfort at the same time. And We've had our situation similarly when we're addressing families, but but thank you so much for sharing what was going through your mind at the time and what you actually thought and what you actually said and how you approached this very, very challenging situation in the moment. So who Deep, Sugat, so this has been an amazing conversation. Our hearts were pounding and we didn't need any snakes to bite us or whatnot, but we were freaking out in Monroe Park. But I think I think it's time to now relax and crack open a beer because we could be quite celebratory. Thank you so much for joining us today on this beautiful day in Akron, Ohio, and sharing this very, very riveting but very important case.
3: Thank you so much, Dana Ahmed. It was a great discussion, and thank you for the opportunity to join you guys.
5: Yeah, it was a great learning experience, and, and we got to m- make a couple new friends along the way. So it was it was great. Thank you so much. Beep. Beep.
3: Now I would like to introduce one of my favorite teachers, Dr. Grace IFO, who was on call interventional cardiologist for that night, and she was perfect interventionalist for that kind of complex case. Who always make a decision precisely and with the great technical skill.
6: Hello, cardio nerds. My name is Grace IFO. I'm an interventional cardiologist at Suma. It's an honor to be joining you all today, discussing this very interesting case of spontaneous coronary artery dissection. By the way, you guys do great work. Your podcast is just amazing. It's very educational, very interesting. You keep it light, you keep it informative. Good job. Well, jumping into this case, uh, like you know, spontaneous coronary dissection or SCAD is a rare subtype of acute MI, maybe less than 1% or so of cases. However, it's an important and increasingly recognized cause of MI, particularly in young women, women in their mid-40s through early 50s with very few risk factors for coronary artery disease. As you may know, there was a recent saw classification into three types. There is a type one scad, in which there's a dissection flap, a false lumen. You may see contrast staining and slow uh, emptying of the vessel. Type two, you have this long diffuse but smooth narrowing of the vessels with an abrupt change in size from a normal segment to a dissected segment. Now, on the third type, you have multiple or single focal lesions, a secondary to intramural hematoma. I think type 2 has for a long time been thought to be atherosclerosis, but now we are recognizing it as these patients tend to have no other clear evidence of atherosclerosis or plaque. And kind of fit the right demographic. A little bit about acute management. The consensus is if a patient is stable, asymptomatic, no signs of ongoing ischemia, and no evidence of left main, proximal LED, or multivessel dissection, conservative therapy is best. And that is because these patients heal within the first few months, maybe even just several weeks, and there is a significant risk involved with revascularization, either surgical or percutaneously. However, there are a few patients where you, you have to do something. They're having ongoing ischemia. There's clear evidence of main involvement or proximal or osteo-LED. They're hemodynamically unstable. They're having unstable ventricular arrhythmias. So just like the patient presented, she presented with a cardiac arrest and ongoing cardiogenic shock. As you guys said, it's true that postpartum patients tend to Present with more severe disease, just like this patient did. And you have to make the decision on acute early revascularization. Most of these patients are treated with percutaneous revascularization, with stenting. But you have to keep in mind that PCI is very challenging. Uh, there are a few reasons. The wire may enter the false lumen. Sometimes you may stent into the false lumen, hence closing the true lumen and worsening the situation. You also tend to have this long type 1 scard lesions or type 1 and 2 scard lesions where the disease extends to the distal parts of the vessel and you start wondering, well, where will I start stenting and where will I end? And, you know, I would leave this 50-year-old woman with stents from her left main down to her LED. The other thing you should remember is the the section can actually propagate proximally to the aorta. So you have to keep all of these in mind. Now, it, it also depends on how experience on how accessible your surgeons are. We are very lucky at SUMA. We have experienced surgeons and they, have, they make themselves very available. So in this patient, we could stand there in the cath lab with a guide in place with our wires ready to be opened, but wait for the surgeons knowing that if she deteriorated and we had to perform PCI, then we would. However, we wanted a better treatment for her in this particular situation, which we believed was bypass surgery. And the other thing about PCI you should you should remember is their potential late complications. So you stent this vessel, and then over time, that intramural hematoma resolves, and the vessel gets bigger. Now you have an acquired malaposition and you start wondering, well, then you know if we stop the adapt, the risk of very late stent thrombosis is there. That's all important to keep in mind. In terms of what we would do with post procedural antiplatelets and anticoagulation, uh, first of all, before these patients on the go coronary angiography, usually they've received an antiplatelet and they're on unfactionated heparin or other anticoagulant, and that's because they're presenting with uh, acute coronary syndrome for the most part. However, the consensus is once you diagnose SCAD, you probably do not need to stay on anticoagulation, particularly if you are treating this conservatively. Now, and if you do proceed with PCI, you would treat them with dual antiplatelet therapy as you would any other patient who has undergone PCI. There's no clear data on whether you should use six months of DAPT or 12 months of DAPT, but I think most people are proceeding with 12 months of antiplatelet therapy if they go ahead with stenting. In terms of conservative management, where they do not undergo stenting, then most people would use at least one antiplatelet agent, and some people would use two. Uh, the, you know, there's the risk of propagating the bleeding, the intramural hematoma, but there's also the risk of it all clotting off and leading to sustained narrowing of the true lumen. And so you have to balance that. But at this point, the consensus is they'll be on duantapelid therapy. Now, there is data suggesting beta blockers decrease the risk of recurrence of SCAD. And so there's clear indication to use that in terms of statins. These patients usually don't have chronic atherosclerosis and so there's still no clear consensus. In general, if they have other reasons to be on a statin, they should be on it. If they don't, then you probably do not need to put them on a statin. Remember, these are you know young middle-aged women of potential childbearing years and so you weigh the risk benefits of using a statin in these patients. Now, and if they have LV dysfunction, you use the usual pharmacotherapy for patients that would lead to improvement in LV function or decreasing the chance of uh, heart failure admissions. Now, finally, what do you do in the outpatient setting? So after these patients have, you know, survived their initial event, you know, you expect them to heal in a few months. Now we do not do routine repeat angiography in these patients. There's no clear indication to. If they do have recurrent chest pains and you're concerned about recurrent scat, then yes, they would undergo coronary angiography. In terms of other imaging, there are studies suggesting that 50 to 70 percent of patients with SCAD also have fibromuscular dysplasia. This commonly affects the renal arteries and the extracranial arteries, so the carotids and vertebral arteries, as well as multiple vascular beds and usually presents with clochasticity, aneurysms, pseudoaneurysms or dissections. And so it's worth looking for evidence of fibromuscular dysplasia. You could proceed with either CT or MR angiography from essentially the head to the pelvic area. And then if you do find FMD, treat it as indicated. So if you find aneurysms, treat them as you would treat aneurysms. If you find narrowings, you treat them accordingly. There isn't clear data suggesting that looking for FMD affects long-term outcomes, but obviously there's an underlying disease process there you want to treat it. Anyway, this case highlighted the multidisciplinary approach involved in some of these very critically ill patients. It highlighted what we have at SUMA and how well everybody works together from the cardiology services, the heart failure services, the interventional services, the surgeons, the critical care doctors. It was uh, an amazing coming together of multiple specialties and we had a a good outcome, which we appreciate and, and we're actually very humbled by. Thanks again for the opportunity to join you. Continue what you do. It's, it's absolutely amazing. Beep. Beep.